Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to another Rahulastava Book Club. I'm very excited to uh, say we have Brenna Hassett here, who's written a fantastic book called Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood. Hello, Brenna. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, um, you were pregnant when you wrote this book and you're pregnant now. I, I'm a, and it was in lockdown when you wrote the book, so I'm presuming it's not the same Pregnancy. It is, I'm it is in fact a different baby. Um, so, given given what I've written, <laughs> you'd think I'd know better. <laughs> That's true. Well, hopefully, we're going. To, we're quite close to the due date, but not. It's a week or so away. So, hopefully, it, we won't be giving birth, but we will carry on. Um, if if that goes, that we have to catch the show. Must go on. Um, Brenna, tell us a little bit about. First of all, before we get onto the book, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do. So um, I am, um, I have a particularly odd job. I am essentially a digger up of dead people's teeth. 
right. would be the absolute <laughs> description of what I actually do. Um, but if you, if you want to get a job, what you do is you get a PhD and you call yourself a biological anthropologist. So um, I look at the history of health and particularly of death um, through skeletons and through the human past and try and figure out what exactly we've been up to. Uh, I'm, I'm at UCL right now and I'm a scientific associate at the Natural History Museum. So at least someone believes that that's a reasonable thing to do. <laughs> so you're sort of time traveling retrospective tooth fairy is the, the you don't pay, yeah. you don't pay for the teeth. If, um, you know, if, <laughs> if tooth fairy had like a CSI spinoff, that would be me. <laughs> I think we'll work on that together. That sounds like a good idea. You've written one other book before, is that right? Called Built on Bones. Yeah, um, yeah. So that one's uh, much more, many more dead people in that one. If people are more <laughs> focused on the dead people aspect. Okay, and this one is well. Tell us, it's a very. I mean, there's so many talking points in this book. I, I don't think we'll get through everything I want to talk to you about. Could you tell us what you consider the book to be and why you wanted to write this particular book? Well, um, I mean, one one thing was, of course, there was a pandemic, and I was very pregnant, and um, <laughs> I was I was suddenly quite interested in the science of being pregnant, and it occurred to me that pregnancy was unreasonable, childbirth was unreasonable, children in general were unreasonable, but you know, um, reproduction is a really important part of a species sort of deal. Like, if you don't reproduce, you're not a species. So, you know, there's science behind this, and I decided that I would have a closer look. Um, I'm not sure I liked what I found, but it was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, it's it's it is when you look at it. When I, it's not something I'd thought about be, at all before, and I'm in, this this book covers, covers a lot of subjects that I'm interested in. Again, genitalia, child being childish, uh, Pompeii comes into it as well. There's it's almost like it's written for me, but I hadn't really considered the fact that human beings have this extraordinary long sort of prolonged childhood which is is that unique in, in the in the animal kingdom yeah I, I think it's something that um a lot of people don't appreciate we sort of know oh evolution isn't it weird we walk upright we have fire we have podcasts um you know but the thing is is that we are children forever some of us longer <laughs> than others yeah, um, well, I may have gotten some slight trouble suggesting that the age was about 40 but that was very critical <laughs> to a plea made to my parents around the same age um, so, but it's amazing. I mean, a bowhead whale lives, what, a couple hundred years? They have the same length of childhood we do, sort of right. 25 years, let's say, just for the physical growing bit, the emotional bits on you. But, you know, the, the physical growing bit, we have the same childhood as, as, you know, a whale that's going to outlive us by centuries. That's not normal. That's extraordinary. <laughs> that's something that we've obviously chosen to do evolutionary wise. And, you know, yeah. you've got to take a look at the pieces to put that together to see exactly how we made this really incredible evolutionary leap. And, and it, you know, it's, it's I mean, the book's quite, math, well, the science is quite mathematical, as it would be, because it's all about, you know, trading off one thing against another for the best chance of survival. So many animals, I mean, you, you talk very early on and throughout the book about the, the pizza rat, which is a, a rat that's been videoed taking a big piece of, is it a whole pizza or a big piece of pizza down it's, into it's a, a subway? It's a slice. So you got to understand right. a New York slice is immense. You know, they're right. just huge. So for, for a UK audience, it might be a whole pizza. Okay. So, so you know, a rat has lots of babies all at once and, they're, and their children, their, their childhood is short um, compared, compared to other mammals. 
but for humans, we tend to have one, one or two at a time, and and this extended, and and it's all about, you know, it's sort of about how much how much resources you're prepared to put into into your child versus how likely the child is to survive in a sort of mathematical sense, right? Yeah, and I mean, so we're we're trying in biology very hard to move away from some of these hard and fast rules, but. You know, one of one of the things is like this sort of R versus K mortality versus fertility. What's driving your species? And, um, you know, the, the cold, hard cash of it is sort of if you've got babies that are not necessarily all going to make it, you're really not going to put the effort into each and every one. So something like a rat that's um, hauling off massive slices of pizza down some subway steps to feed billions of babies, not billions, like 12, but still, it's a lot of rats. Um, (laughs) You don't want to have 12 babies at once. You know, it's got a different strategy from something like a human that is going to have this extended pregnancy and put just an insane amount of resources into each and every single baby. And we do that, it's kind of nice, because we really think those babies are going to live. You know, we we put our effort in because we think it's going to be worth it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's it sort of interesting when it comes down to it, because it, in a way it sort of takes out emotion and, and love and things, though those things are obviously important in terms of creating the bonds. Uh, and I mean, you sort of discuss in the book at one point whether... It makes more sense to, in reproductive terms, and obviously this all works because you know if you're reproductively successful and you have a and and your 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 way of living is successful, then you will you will your species will survive. So it's sort of not a choice. But you talk about the difference between having a male and a female child in terms of uh, how whether that will lead to uh, reproductive success for the next generation. Yeah, so that's a really sort of interesting, I don't know where the actual proof is going to fall on this, because sometimes these studies, you look at them and say, someone has gotten money to see if billionaires have more sons than daughters. Why can't I get that kind of money? And I'm really not sure about this research design. But, you know, these are these are things that have been put forward. So one of the hypotheses is, is that daughters are a sure thing, that most females will reproduce. And most females, um, and we, we apply this to primates as well. So it's not just, um, you know, it's yeah. the rest of the monkeys and the apes, not just us. Um, but because, you know, women reproduce at a steady rate, they're a sure bet. You know, they're a pretty solid bet. But if you have males, some of them are not going to reproduce at all. And some of them are going to go full Genghis Khan, um, you know, <laughs> Brendan O'Ban, whatever, whatever the, you know, and they're going to dominate the gene pool. So yeah. you can have really successful sons or you can have really non-successful sons. In, when times are tough, you might opt for the sure option, the steady bet. But, um, you know, the idea was that if you've got billionaires, they might actually go for more sons. It's kind of hard to tell how this mechanism would actually work, <laughs> um, especially given that, you know, um, that's not <laughs> how choosing the sex of the baby sort of, I mean, it's a problem that's been plaguing us since Henry VIII. It's it's not something that's easily done. No, no. Well, it, you know, the, like I say, there's, uh, there's so much to talk about in this book, um, uh, and I will just um, it's it, it's absolutely fascinating and 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 makes you think about all sorts of things. I'm going to just concentrate on a for, for a moment on a few of the things that um, that I picked up and that 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 crossover with some of my own work. I've written a book about. Well, I've now written two books. Uh, one about uh, the penises, and and now I've just written a 
a book about testicles. Uh, and I was glad to see that both of those uh, parts, as, as well as female parts, uh, feature in this book. Though you were, you're quite disparaging about uh, the human penis. You call it the most basic primate penis available, which I've, I was quite affronted by. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but there's, there's, there's interesting stuff about uh, male genitalia being indicative of whether a species is uh, monogamous or or less monogamous right yes so i you know to, to really understand this kind of anthropology you have to put yourself into the mindset of a, of a male researcher in the 1960s or <laughs> something like that and just really understand the only interesting question about evolution is how we got to the penis size that we currently yes. have um so it turns out there's been a lot of research on <laughs> relative primate penis shape size and, um, and so what we know is that uh, primates come with a whole host of options for genitals that you may not expect. Um, the phrase penis spikes is just not something that you really want to, to sort of think about in our species, but it is something flanges and spikes, um, the os baculum, so an actual bone yeah. that sort of supports the penis. These are all kind of embellishments that can add a competitive edge to a male mating strategy. And so <laughs> what we're really talking about when we're talking about genital design is mating strategy, is how do you and your genetic material become the most successful genetic material? Um, and uh, a lot of this actually does come down to research done on testes size, particularly like relative testes size. So if you were a mouse lemur, and uh, you were to perhaps have access to scales and some, I don't know, issues uh, personally, you would be able to measure yourself and find out that each individual um, testicle is about relative to your body, the size of a grapefruit for a human. <laughs> yeah. The mouse lemurs, champions, champions of the primate testicle size range. And it turns out that um, that testy size versus the body size is something that relates to kind of how competitive your mating is. So if you need to make sure that your genetic material is getting out on top, you need to make a lot of genetic material and you need mm -hmm. to deliver that genetic material. So <laughs> that's where things like length, girth, aforementioned penis spikes, which I really should stop talking about. <laughs> um, you know, those are all um, aspects of competitive mating. And you know who doesn't have competitive mating? Us. Right. <laughs> and, kind of marmosets though marmosets do some other stuff like the females sort of suppress ovulation through terror and glandular secretions um you know so the the reason that we find this whole sort of super unimpressive genital package interesting because it actually tells us that we have this sort of non-competitive mating regime we're not doing what's called scramble mating which is exactly what you expect it would be um, we are pretty much a pair bonded species, which is the most boring you could get. And it's also super, super weird because like less than 5% of the animal kingdom does it. Yeah, that's all very interesting. Now, um, there, there's a the bit in my book about uh, testicles, uh, which I, I was just interested to see what you think about this, that uh, some people have argued, I think not particularly successfully, that human testicles are as vulnerable and weird as they are as because they're sort of like a peacock's feather uh, uh, in terms of uh, if your mate sees how brave you are and having your testicles dangling around 
and they're so vulnerable that that will make you sexually attractive. I have to say, my, I don't think my testicles have ever attracted uh, sexual mates. Well, how, do you I, feel, I actually, how do you feel about that? That is, you know what, that is actually a completely new theory on me. Um, <laughs> I'm interested, but I'm not sure about it. I mean, we, we say the same thing about concealed ovulation. So, you know, why, if you're an olive baboon and it's time to mate and you're a girl, stuff swells up, it goes bright red. All the olive baboons in the neighborhood know what's yeah. up. Humans, we hide that because basically because we use sex for social reasons, it doesn't need to be tied to reproduction for us. So we have um, all sorts of theories about um, why we're hairless, one of which is, you know, to make our bottoms look like we're constantly ready for sex. We have <laughs> just some very odd ideas. And um, I think perhaps like the, shall we say, decorative testicle theory, um, <laughs> you know, some of these might reveal slightly more about the researchers involved. <laughs> Well, you, the book's very, I should say the book is very funny. There's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a great read. There's a lot of very funny um, footnotes particularly, but it's, 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 it motors along and is amusing as well as being full of uh, a lot of science and a lot of uh, facts. Um, you know, I think you're very strong on the fact that uh, historically the people, as we have already touched upon in this, historically the people investigating uh, all of these areas are men, and uh, and that the science is very male driven. You're very, you're very. Uh, Plutarch comes in for a, quite a kicking in this book. I hope, I hope you're such a miserableist, though. I mean, God, he complains about everything. I, I mean, how could you not come across Plutarch? I mean, it's just. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because again, I think this is a thing that's coming through now as as uh, we're getting a little more equality in in research and in sciences and, and hopefully everywhere that, uh, you know, a male perspective has, has skewed, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these subjects. Uh, just the other day I read that, uh, you know, they've science has only just discovered there are more nerve endings in the clitoris than were previously thought. And, you know, as you say, if that was a penis, we would have, we'd have found that out uh, to 200 years ago, but no one's been looking at the clitoris for some reason. Uh, it is exactly that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to get this book and, and to, and to realize how much of the prejudice about ideas of evolution come from the people writing about evolution. Even Charles Darwin, you're, you're slightly cheeky about. Well, um, he was he was uh, less than polite about the capacities of women. So yes, <laughs> I feel I feel like it's I feel like it's fair, but it is true, and it's that you know the whole subject of um, kids, babies, how we raise them. I mean, it's obviously how we get to be who we are as a species, but it's like, shouldn't we care about that? And it's like, ah, no, it's chick stuff. It's like, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, it's and and not you know and not to think. Uh, I mean, I know, like historically, um, again, science. Maybe in the ancient times, people thought oh, women produced babies and weren't aware that men were involved. Then, when they realised men were getting involved, everything became a bit more kind of uh, fair. But then, sort of religion started believing it was only men. I mean, that one of my research things from Talking Cock was uh, my book, Talking Cock, was that for a long time, you know, it was believed that the the sperm was basically homunculus that was planted in the the soil of the woman who whose only job was to grow the child and and didn't do anything else and so that that sort of pervasive idea of a patriarchal society obviously uh leaks into science as, as well as everywhere else 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it, it still leaks is probably an interesting word to use, but um, <laughs> the, the sort of, you know, it still does get in there. Um, you know, we have anthropologists going, oh, well, you know, these guys over in the Trobrian Islands or these guys in Papua New Guinea, they don't, they don't really understand paternity because they're not um, viciously killing each other whenever their women have, you know, babies with other people. It's like, maybe they just don't do that. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe you have some hangups yourself. <laughs> Mr. 19th century anthropologist yeah. that you should perhaps <laughs> investigate before accusing the rest of humanity. Yeah, well, it's very good for that. And yeah, absolutely, you know, that the, the, the need, it's it, given, you know, the importance of mothers in this particular <laughs> particular subject and the, the importance of females, uh, you know, the needs of women and the, and the, and the opinions of women seem to be quite, an, quite important at least. Yeah. And I think it also, I mean, it, the, the disservice goes both ways. I mean, one of the, the sort of obsessions with our kind of genitals and monogamy, you know, one of the conclusions that actually leads us to, but people don't talk about as much, is how important it is to have dads that do a lot of caring. Yeah. You know, we've we've got, you know, we, we always talk about uh, moms and the evolution of childhood, but we should point out that... Um, you know, uh, those marmosets, the ones with the glandular secretions and the rule by terror, you know, they're monogamous. And um, the reason they have to be monogamous is because they need a marmoset dad because they have exactly one more baby than they can carry. Right. You need a marmoset dad. Yeah. This is, you know, and that's actually, you know, these these sort of caring responsibilities, getting other people to care for our stupidly expensive, useless babies turns out to be a major evolutionary thing. So um, just kind of discounting them because you've got 19th century ideas doesn't really work. Yeah, and, you know, and I think people, you, I think you touch on this as well, that uh, it's sort of, there was an idea that, I mean, because of huge infant mortality, I think people assumed that people in the past couldn't have loved their babies as much as we love our babies and didn't like children, which seems like against all logic, because why would we suddenly, if, if it wasn't there in the past, we wouldn't suddenly evolve this, you know, the, that that paternal uh, and maternal love must must be in us. But uh, yeah, that that's a sort this of weird possible idea. exception of Plutarch, right? He's the one who sort of tells <laughs> us that, um, you know, Romans didn't care for their babies and they wouldn't have funerals. And of course, I mean, as an archaeologist, is the, the sort of sad and depressing part of my job. But of course, we do find grave inscriptions for much loved children. And there's no reason to think that people didn't love their children just as much as we did in the past. They just, you know, didn't have a, a lovely NHS or a, you know, yeah. a nurse to call um, on all times. And, you know, there's this whole thing where like, the Romans go through this period of hating Carthage. Like they just hate Carthage. They really hate it. You have to say down with Carthage at the end of every speech. It's very important. Anyway, <laughs> They're anti-Carthage propaganda. They're like, those guys, they hate babies. They feed them to giant, fiery statues of balls. That's what they do with babies. You, we hate them. We're going to go smash them. And, you know, uh, it turns out that archaeologically, we can actually tell um, if this was, in fact, true. We did find a cemetery of infants. And it turns out that those infants are actually, they're sort of medical accidents. You know, they're the, the sad yeah. outcome of our species being incredibly bad at reproducing which is tragic, but it is natural for us, not for any other animals, but it is for us. So I think a lot of the things we think about the past, we talk about the past a little bit like it's some other society, some other culture, which means that we're sort of condescending and a little bit othering. And, yeah. you know, essentially we're a little bit racist about people in the past. Like, oh, they didn't feel like we do. It's like, well, no, they probably did. They just had a suckier time of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it did, it did, well, and and it must be, and you do touch on this in the book as well. Uh, and uh, because of the book, I was I happened to be in Hitchin today, as I've just talked to you before the before the podcast, uh, where I live nearby. I've never been to Hitchin Museum, but you mention in the in the book that there's a um, there's a skeleton there of a, a mother who died in childbirth with triplets, and so I went to uh, to view that because I was right next door I thought let's go and have a look and it's extremely uh, uh, harrowing to see this weirdly I wrote a, a play about uh, archaeology called Excavating Rita about 20 years ago uh, and and, a, and a, uh, a, there was a skeleton in that who who died giving birth with a with the, the baby uh, in the grave as well which which is basically what what this is but it, so and she was the one of the first people, well, the first recorded case of someone with triplets, but unfortunately, obviously, the triplets didn't survive. Uh, how is that? As you know, obviously, you're a scientist and an archaeologist, but it, it must be pretty harrowing to sort of come across that sort of stuff as you do in your in your job. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, my research is mostly focused on child health and growth, which means that I have to study the, the opposite of that. You know, yeah. that's that's something that I've always um, had to look at. I have to say that once you have kids of your own, suddenly there's a whole world of empathy. <laughs> it just goes, oh, this is, this is very sad, actually. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think it's one of the things is, you know, archaeology is supposed to be there to, to balance this sort of sense of history, which is written by the victors, by the kings, by the important people. So, you know, if, if no one's going to tell the story about the kids and the women who had them, and all the people who actually make up, you know, the human past, you know, we, we have to go through the miserable bits, which include, you know, the, the, the high proportion of children that didn't make it through infancy, or didn't make it, you know, um, to, to adulthood, especially when we started inventing things like, you know, um, huge crowded urban worlds full of, you know, haves and have nots, and really yeah. started to, um, you know, basically kill off a lot of our children yeah um and uh well talking again on this subject uh, there was a, a fact that i didn't know that i was i think i've got this right uh, and you are an expert on teeth that uh that is this true that birth so traumatic for the the for us all when we're born that it, le- it leaves a mark on our it leaves a line on our teeth so you know if a baby's died before uh, it was born because it won't have that that line yes. on its teeth. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so my te- <laughs> my technical PhD is in dental anthropology, and you're very sorry you just asked about teeth. But, um, <laughs> teeth are so fascinating. So teeth essentially are like a fossil in your mouth. You know, you chip a tooth; it doesn't grow back. It only grows once, but it grows while you're young. So it leaves this perfect record of everything that happened to you in childhood. So a lot of my research is on stresses that happen to you that sort of mess up, you know, the the structure of the tooth, chemistry of the tooth, which tells you like what you ate, what you drank, how long you were breastfed for. And we can actually see that there is almost always in certain teeth that are growing um, before you're born. So they're sort of up in your jaw, um, you know, just forming. Uh, We can actually see that there is a stress that happens at the time of birth. And then, of course, we can start counting days from this and do all sorts of incredible, cool science. But um, yeah, so that's one of the things that came out with that whole um, evil Carthaginian case. Yeah, That's how we knew is that these babies didn't actually, most of them didn't have that line, which meant that they never were born alive. 
Yeah. So that's sort of how we know that um, this whole feeding fiery statues of Baal screaming infants <laughs> thing was sort of more Roman than, than perhaps accurate. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Another thing that I didn't, uh, that I'd never heard before, um, and I suppose I sort of knew about this in an oblique sense, but not about this. You write about the placenta is not, uh, is not human. Uh, no. Would you like to explain? Yes. I, I, I hardly can. It seems like a horrifying <laughs> thing to do. Um, but, so, you know, a couple hundred million years ago, some enterprising animal, some enterprising vertebrate decided to capture a bit of RNA virus sort of DNA. Well, RNA. Um, and, uh, and that became a weird temporary organ that mammals and only mammals can create when they're pregnant. And it essentially acts as a filter that allows them to sort of embed their offspring inside their body. So forget eggs where anyone could snack on them. You know, we're going to carry these, these eggs inside us. And the placentas just get weirder and weirder <laughs> as you go on, because they're essentially devices for allowing a foreign object to start controlling the host, which is creepy, except for it's a baby. So it's cute which is very difficult to reconcile. <laughs> but human placentas are the weirdest. So, I mean, so all, all mammals mostly have them. You can think of like marsupials. They have um, crap ones, which is why they have to do the pouch thing. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of halfway house. And then we've got, you know, primates have them. And in humans, basically the placenta is able to take a lot more control for the baby's needs than other animals. So when you think of, um, you know, uh, another mammal having a pregnancy, they don't get gestational diabetes. They don't get hypertension and preeclampsia and die romantically like that chick from uh, Downton Abbey. Um, you know, spoiler, sorry. But I haven't like, seen it yet. <laughs> if you're ever going to watch it. Um, but, you know, these, these, like our pregnancies kill us. That's yeah. not normal. But it seems to be this sort of evolutionary compromise that we've made 
in order to have these insanely demanding babies, these babies that take so many calories from the mom. You know, if they want more blood to bathe in, they're going to ask for it and you're going to get preeclampsia and die if you're not set up for it. Right. Yeah, it's it's it is crazy. But as I put, I mean, you say that we're weird and babies are weird, and um, and, and you know, it, it is a it's it, it is such an interesting process when you look into it. You you also um, look into uh, childhood, obviously, as well, and this this length of childhood and um, the games games we play and all that sort of thing. So it, and and which again is is something fairly unique to to human beings. I suppose there's there's Prime other primates play but yeah so play is a weird thing like play seems very very useless um except for it turns out that if you're a social animal it's incredibly important because like the whole thing with social animals is they have a lot more rules to learn um if you think about some animals that aren't even mammals that have super long childhoods so like a crow a crow is a kid for a really long time and this is because they literally live in a society that is murderous i mean that they have an intense social circle and they need to learn where they're going to fit who's above them who's below them how to get along in a sort of crow eat crow world so crows are some are animals that essentially have this long juvenile period which we think of as like the time for play because they need to learn the rules of their society and that kind of that appears in mammals they all little baby mammals sort of play a little tiny bit and primates they just turn up the volume they ramp it up until you get to essentially us but we can look at um, even like chimpanzees and their close cousins, bonobos. So chimpanzees are, um, they're, they're separated by like 2 million years. They're not the same species at all. They just happen to look very, very similar. <laughs> um, not a mistake to make though, because chimpanzees tend towards a lot of aggression. They have uh, very male dominated societies. Bonobos are the ones that are famous for having like hello sex just because. They're very, um, they have a very different social <laughs> But um, if you look at the amount of time and especially when, what age um, these animals play, you can see that chimpanzees, they do their play in their very early years and then they kind of knock it off. There's no time for play. You know, uh, mama chimpanzee has to teach her daughters how to hunt with spears, which is a thing they do. Um, but yeah. in bonobos, it's more like, actually they keep playing. They keep playing their whole lives. And humans are the same way, that essentially the way we play depends on our society. So we play in order to learn how to become the best member of the society that we're gonna become. Um, they've looked at differences in plays between like kids um, from like a more hunter-gatherer society. So a society with a little less in, uh, importance of gender roles, um, you know, a little less structured, a little less hierarchical, and then nearby kids who are kids of agriculturists and farmers. And the farmers' kids, they actually, um, they start, they, they play less, um, they stop playing earlier, and they also, interestingly, they, they play more gendered roles from an earlier age than the kids, the hunter-gatherers. And it just shows us, you know, what you play at is something that you, you know, you basically are learning in order to fit into your society. So that play is important. And for every parent who has had a girl or boy child that has gone on to do something incredibly stereotypical, like play only with dolls, even though you <laughs> insisted they were not going to wear pink and play with dolls, you know, it's 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 not your fault. It's the society. They can, you can't <laughs> escape it. You got to keep them in a bubble if you want that not to happen. <laughs> and you you do talk. I mean, again, uh, I'm fascinated by the the human story and where we came from and all the 
the offshoots of humanity, all the other homos that didn't make it through to, to the present day. Um, what do you think was the difference for Homo sapiens? I mean, was it Homo sapiens, the difference that knocked off all the others? What, why, why did this genus of Homo survive and the other ones, which who presumably were, were similar in their, with childhood and babies? So not there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of thought on this subject (laughs) in the community. Um, But I mean, so one of the really interesting suggestions, and again, from teeth, showing how interesting teeth are, are um, is that if you you knock a tooth into a synchrotron, you can actually count the days that it was growing. And if you count the days you're growing, you know how long it took to grow, and you can compare that actual hard chronological age to like how the skeleton looks. So you can see in our earliest ancestors, um, you know, something that looks like a six-year-old actually grew in three years. So we know that's a faster childhood than we have. That, off, you know, that little child did not have as long to learn the rules of the world, to have its society. And as you go down our line closer and closer to us, we see that actually that gets longer. So Neanderthals are a super interesting case. So they, you know, they last, they interbred with us. We, we shared a world in various parts of the world with them. But there's a slight indication that they may have grown just ever so slightly faster than us, that they may have matured a little bit quicker. So one of the interesting suggestions in the last decade or so is, you know, maybe it is just that extended childhood that's given us the edge. Um, yeah. And, you know, that extended childhood is part and partial, part and parcel of being social, of our incredibly dense social networks. One of the problems Neanderthals ran into is they kind of ran out of people to to make more Neanderthals with, yeah. Um, you know, which is a problem for a species. That is not a problem our species has had, right? And we not we knocked them. You know, it, it, you do say that every time, every time Homo sapiens turned up somewhere, the the resident Homo got sort of uh, the the Hobbit one on the way down to Australia, <laughs> but they, they sort of disappeared once Homo sapiens turned up and Neanderthals sort of disappeared. great news for anyone. Uh, no. no. Uh, you know, it might just because we're so great. I mean, it, it is sort of interesting. I mean, all these things, it's just, it is a sort of mathematical equation. Uh, and it's just, because we happen to do this, it happens to work. And then we, and we, we sort of are this incredibly successful species and 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 i think the book gives a a decent argument to say that it is due to this uh i mean all mammals obviously are developing outside of the womb so there are animals uh, well you talk about spiders who are basically born as uh, fully grown um or or as or have no infancy but um that you know we're growing outside of that we do most of our growing after we're born which is even a giraffe can sort of run around pretty quickly yeah. And whereas we, you know, um, I mean, physically, we don't mature until sometime after sort of 25. And this is always people's contention. It's like, well, when are we grown up? And it's like, well, <laughs> socially, <laughs> physically, biologically, what do you want? Um, you know, uh, it's it's a movable feast. But physically, I mean, um, so the bone on your collarbone, so where your collarbone touches your chest bone, there's a little tiny flake of bone. And that actually doesn't even finish growing together until you're 30. Okay. So the next time you look at, you know, some MP under the age of 30 or something, you go, your collarbones aren't finished yet. <laughs> and it's, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, a lot of, child, you know, you could, you could define childhood as the, uh, the time before you're fertile, but with, with human beings, 
don't generally speaking, and it's not just a societal thing. I think that you know, fertility. We we become fertile, but not generally having kids until you know twenty, but often till thirty or or more than that. You know, we 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 put off yeah. the absolutely, and you know, it's not actually just us. So great apes also have this this sort of awkward adolescent phase where they're technically capable but no one would want them to reproduce <laughs> um so you get situations where um my favorite is the kind of gorilla boy band phenomenon so gorillas live in a kind of one male harem situation so there's a big silverback and he's got a bunch of females who live with him but they're all going to have kids and some of those kids are going to be males and the males, they're going to grow up. They're going to be able to sexually reproduce, but they're definitely not going to be culturally able. They're not going to be able to challenge the big guy. So they've got to go do something else. So they do. They go off and live in these like roving packs. Um, you know, anthropology does not record them, uh, you know, sort of singing or making dance videos. But, you know, they are essentially <laughs> these boy bands wandering the jungle. And so we actually have in great apes and in all human societies, a really long extended period. Um, for us, it's much longer than other apes. But we have a period where there's, there's this kind of useless adolescence, um, which isn't so useless after all. Um, for great apes, we know that that's when a lot of information transfer happens. Right. So that's when a lot of stuff that you learned in your, your sort of birth group gets shared to the other groups that you're going to eventually join. Um, and humans, uh, you know, human teenagers are excellent of communicating with each other. Um, if I understood TikTok at all, I would have a better point to make, but I don't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon. And we seem to have really taken that phase, you know, the sort of, um, let's say, if you're, you're technically capable of reproducing at 15, but you still have it at 40, that's yeah. a big extension. Yeah, that's, you know, that's me. There, there I am. In fact, you know, I, I definitely went through a long period where nobody was interested in even going through the motions of uh, reproducing with me. So, you know, I, I, I sympathise with those gorillas. Um, I mean, there's a lot more. I, 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 I mean, there's some great stuff about uh, births in the past. Uh, you kind of just skirt, skirt over it, but the, invent, uh, the invention of the chainsaw was, <laughs> was death. Is down to helping people in in birth, which is again something we don't want to think about too much. Maybe, but no, is, is that just, there? There are small facts that live in archaeologists' heads that um, <laughs> you, you will never go to enough cocktail parties to use all of these anecdotes. <laughs> and I have an unfortunate habit of writing books that are essentially everything interesting I've ever wanted to say at a dinner party that proved to be inappropriate, and yeah. I held back. Yeah. Um, that's not true. I never held back. Um, but you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, the entire history of of obstetrics is fascinating. So, you know, human birth is very difficult and that's for a series of reasons, probably not the ones you think. Um, we, we sort of may discount some of the old older theories about walking upright and big brain babies. But um, one of the things we do culturally is make life even more difficult for women, uh, particularly Scotland. So <laughs> poor Scotland um, has not got a lot of natural sunlight. And during the Industrial Revolution, combination of pollution and poor nutrition meant there's absolute epidemics of rickets, which is the disease that makes your bones go soft. That's fine. You get bowed legs. Uh, it's not great, but it's fine. But you also get, if you're female, a bowed pelvis. And that prevents you from having a successful birth. So one of the reasons that Scottish medicine is so uh, outstanding and so pioneering um, with anesthesia, with obstetrics, 
is because they literally faced an absolute crisis of women who had rachitic pelvises. They're basically smushed out of you know, capacity to have a baby the normal way. And C-sections were not something that you were expected to survive. You know, they were um, not a, a sure thing at all. So a lot of the inventions that have gone into medical history have all been sort of, you know, based against necessity. Of course, that necessity is human created, which tells you a lot about why our species is where it is. Yeah. And, and the just the invention of forceps as well, that men, the male doctors sort of kept this a secret, what the, what they were doing so that they could make money. Of this. Is that, is that what, have I remembered yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah. No, so there's, there's a family of, of, of male midwives. And um, there, was a, there was sort of in constant competition with the, the previous sort of midwives who'd been female and had been down the road before. Um, but the male midwives had, uh, this family had invented the forceps, which did actually uh, make a big difference in birthing. And um, it, was, it was a secret. So that's one of the reasons um, that people have argued that there is a sheet used um, right. to sort of cover the area is that they were actually putting the sheet over the woman giving birth. So no one would see what they were doing in order to save the baby and uh, because they charged a fortune they they ended you know the the family sort of saw to royalty and things and you had to pay money if you wanted this magical service and then of course uh, word got out and then yeah <laughs> someone saw the for- the sheet came off so oh oh no yeah we've got some we've got big thing to put out right i'm not going to keep you much longer but uh just in case uh you know you, you give birth and uh but um, I was interested to find out uh, the facts about synchronizing of menstrual cycles and also that humans have a breeding season. I didn't, these, I did yes, not realize that. Have you never noticed that there is just a, a stupid number of birthdays in August? I haven't I really just... noticed it. Okay, I'm, a July, well, I'm a July baby myself. Well, you know what? That's pretty close. So it turns out there is something called a Christmas party season. Right. Um, but it's really interesting. So like most primates actually do have seasonal breeding because yeah. what you want to do in an uncertain world is time your baby for that moment when there's the most fruit on the trees, you know, the most insects in the air, whatever it is you're eating, you want to take advantage. Um, and humans seem to do this as well. You can actually look at like the different latitudes um, which will sort of determine growing season for things, so different amounts of light. And at different latitudes, humans reproduce slightly different times. There's sort of a, a bumper crop um, that seems <laughs> to come along at exactly the ideal moment. But because we're humans, we mess with that massively by having essentially Christmas party season. So in the countries <laughs> where you have a sort of midwinter Ah, everything, all the rules are off. We're going to drink a lot. You unsurprisingly have a rash of nine months later, you know, late summer births. Okay. And, um, you know, we see that it's not just, it's not just sort of modern day countries. Um, there are uh, people who um, don't use the Christmas calendar, Advent calendar system, um, who, you know, have equally uh, obscure sort of timing. So there's a group of farmers who depend entirely on yams. Yams are super important and they have a huge taboo on having sex during yam season. You just can't do it. It's wrong. You will be so in trouble. But nine months after the end of yam season, (laughs) there is a bumper crop of new yam farmers. So, um, you know, these these are, again, more amazing biological adaptations that humans have just messed with. Sure. Um, 
Uh, I, I was I, I listened. I both read the book and uh, listened to the audio books. You know, in in different uh, times, I, not twice, but I I, would, I did both. I found it a bit. Usually, I prefer the audio book first, but I didn't with this book. I thought maybe because there's so much in there that it's better to read it. Why did you not do your own audio book, Brenda? Is my first question. <laughs> I asked and I asked and I pushed and I said I want to do it because I uh, I have a weird, messed up transatlantic accent uh, and um, a friend of mine once read one of my books and and he said you know this sounds exactly like you and it's so great it's exactly your voice and the thing is I can just I can just shut the book whenever I want and it's fantastic <laughs> so, it's like, so apparently you know I have a particular voice but um, Audible does not uh, offer that kind of contract anymore so that's what okay. you get to do in the book with Audible yeah no I, I think it would have been better I, I don't I, I not I can't work out it might be me, and it might be the person reading the book, uh, or it might just be the kind of book it is. But I found it quite hard to ingest the information in audio form. Whereas when I read it, it was very clear. And I think you got a very particular sense of humour as well. And I'm not sure the audio book reading always uh, nailed it. I think the uh, well, it was it, I'm, I'm, the, the woman who read it. I'm sure is absolutely lovely. But um, I, I have noted that um, particularly my footnotes are marmite. Um, so <laughs> if, you, if you come to science looking for the calm, reassuring voice of reason, perhaps you should look <laughs> elsewhere. I have a lot of facts. I have a scientific career, but I am just physically incapable of being serious for that long. So there you go. But that's good. I, you know, I, I, I much prefer it when the author does it. So I'm sad that they didn't let you do it. And, uh, you know, I thought I might talk to you and discover you, you know, had, weren't, weren't able to speak or something. And that might be the reason, but you seem to be, uh. Uh, very capable of communicating, so uh, I would say to Audible, who I do like, to employ the employ the writer unless they really don't want to do it. Free, free the writers to their <laughs> own words, because it's because there's a lot of information in this one, and I think it it just I I, I yeah I don't know I don't I I'm not criticizing the the lady reading it, but because it could easily equally just be my low attention span. Uh, and, and I think, I think, I think um, with... sometimes the accent is, you know, the, there's a very calming American accent, which I think is, <laughs> yes. it doesn't, um, it's not quite as frenetic, let's say, as my spoken voice. I think that's true. And it's, I think it's, I, I was driving and I was tired, but it, it sometimes made me a little soporific, I have to say. So I would recommend with this one, reading the book, because you get, you get a lot more out of it. And there, there's, I mean, there's so, we haven't even touched on it, really. There's so much in this book. Plus, plus uh, pictures that, of the first kids' potty. You'll miss that if you yes. don't read the book. Yeah, there exactly. Is, well, I did, I, I have to flip through, yeah. I had to pay the, uh, the Greek Ministry of Antiquities a large amount of money to reproduce a picture of a 1930s toddler successfully using a posh 7th century Athenian potty. So I right. mean that's that's worth the price of admission alone, surely. That definitely is. Um, are there any books, Brenna, that uh, you, you your book was actually recommended to me in a previous podcast by Alice Roberts, who has a oh. quote on the front of the book? Uh, are there any books, and that's why that's why I read the book. I, I so thank you to Alice for um, directing me towards your book. It's fantastic. Um, are there any books you are reading that you'd like to recommend? Well, um, hopefully by now everyone has read uh, Re Rebecca Rag Sykes' um, Kindred, which is just a beautiful, lyrical, incredibly well-written book about Neanderthals um, and just not the Neanderthals you know, the cavemen of yore, but this beautiful look at sort of their societies, their art, their 
their crafts, their lives. And it's, it's just sort of, it's quite a poetic book. It's the opposite of mine. It makes you sort of feel <laughs> soaring and happy rather than giggling slightly at descriptions of monkeys falling out of trees. <laughs> Great. We'll look out for that one. Look, it's been really lovely to talk to you, Brenna. Loved, uh, good luck with the, the coming weeks and the awful uh, reality of job. I'm glad you have to live, live through this after calling babies. Don't to call your babies weird to their face. I mean, you can do it when they're babies. Oh, it's too late. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, I, I hope everything goes fine for you. Thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, for his fine production. And we'll be back next week. I'm not sure who's going to be the next guest yet. Maybe it'll be uh, Kindred. We'll see. Thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour or RichardHerring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. GoFasterStripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.